0: That will be presented by Adrian North. This is the second appearance before our group by Adrian. He spoke here several years ago when he wrote his first book, Soul Food: The Surprising Story of American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time. That book won the James. That was his first book, and he won the James Beard Award for Scholarship and Reference in 2014. And besides being an award winning culinary author, Mr. Miller is not chopped liver when it comes to the rest of his life. Uh, he's an attorney, certified barbecue judge, who lives in Denver, Colorado. Uh, he is, and by the way, Adrian's twin sister is here, right and, and, and what's your first name? April. April. No, this is, this is uh, February. <laughs> but we're going to, uh, afterwards, the three of us are going to Beloy's restaurant to eat. Uh, you know, that's Obama's, one of his favorite places. And uh, that's where he stopped before he gave his last address as president, before he went to McCormick Place. He stopped at Beloy's to have dinner. So we're going to get some Obama, uh, Obama, flavor flavor when we go there. And again, right? is, this is an attorney, served by Harvard and Judge. He is currently the Executive Director of the Colorado Council of Churches, and as such, is the first African-American and the first layperson to hold that position. But wait, there's more. He's previously served as Special Assistant to President Bill Clinton and a Senior Policy Analyst for Colorado Governor Bill Ritter. He has been a board member of the Southern Foodways Alliance. Uh, as I said, he, he is not chocolate, but uh, and before I bring Adrian down to address as well. he's right here, I have a request from him. Uh, your your book covers the entire run of the White House from the Washingtons to the Obamas, and maybe it's asking a lot, but I, I don't know if you even have this information, but can you give us a glimmer of what's going on in the kitchen since the White House got drunk? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Just to talk, but uh, anyway, taco bowls forever. That's all I'll say. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, Scott. Appreciate it. Good morning, everyone. It's so good to be here again to the Culinary Stories of Chicago. So uh, I have a lot of people from different parts of my life here. Of course, I have my twin sister who's with me from the beginning. Uh, I have friends from college, friends from law school, uh, family, all kinds of friends. So it's just good to see you out So what I'm gonna do this morning is, I'm gonna talk a little bit about my journey, how I got to write this book, um, and how I got to the White House. And then I'm gonna tell you a little bit about the framework of the book. And then I'm just gonna tell you stories about some of the cooks that I highlight through my book, and then we'll take questions. And then at the end, we actually have some samples from recipes from my book. So we've got sweet potato, uh, sweet potato cheesecake, and the cool thing about this is that the crust is pound cake. Uh, this was something that Bill Clinton loved. <laughs> and then we've got some uh, beveled almonds. So these are almonds that are coated in butter and cayenne pepper. And this is uh, from a cook who, an African American cook who cooked in uh, the, late, uh, the early 1890s for Benjamin Harrison. And then we've got some Pernanales River chili. And this was a favorite of Lyndon Johnson. And I going to tell a great backstory about that. <laughs> so um, I'm just curious, how many of you were here for my soul food lecture that I did? In all right, cool. I'm so pleased and amazed that you came back after that. <laughs> That's great. All right, so let's talk about my journey. So um, as you know, I wrote this book on the history of soul food. And um, first of all, born and raised in Denver, Colorado, went to Stanford undergrad North Law School. I was practicing law in Denver, and this is not to disparage any attorneys in the office. But it wasn't for me. Got to the point where I was singing spirituals in my office. <laughs> so I figured I might need to do something else. <laughs> So I was actually going to open up a soul food restaurant in Denver and then I got a call from a friend of mine who was working in the Clinton White House who was a a Georgetown law school classmate. And she said, Hey Adrian, we've got this new thing called the initiative for one America and we would love to get your recommendations for friends back in DC who might be interested in this work. So I don't know if you remember this, but president Clinton launched an initiative on race and the idea from that initiative, and this is a crazy idea that if we just talk to one another, we might realize that we have a lot more in common than what supposedly divides us, all right? Crazy, right? So that went on for about a year and a half, and then that uh, group headed by the late John Hope Franklin made recommendations, and one of the recommendations was to have an office in the White House to continue that work. So that became the initiative for One America, and that's what I worked on. Now, when I was introduced as Special Assistant to the President, I have to just let you know, I was not an intern. Okay, so get those thoughts out of your mind. (laughs) So um, when my friend told me about this position, I did the same thing that Dick Cheney did when George W. Bush asked him to find a vice president. I was the head of the search committee, only submitted in my name, right? So so I got the job. Smart, right? So I got the job, it was great. I loved my time in the White House. If you've ever visited the White House complex, my office was actually in at that time, it was called the Old Executive Office Building. It was initially the Department of War and Navy. Uh, now it's the Dwight Eisenhower Building, but it's that really, uh, really ornate building that's immediately west of the White House. And um, I have to say, during my time there, we did a lot of initiatives around the country, and just found out that a lot of people were doing great work on race relations, but it just never made the news because it was positive stuff. And there was another complicated factor in that the Monica Lewinsky. Thing was going so a lot of our work was never um, never made it to the press. Uh, one thing I will say, uh, you've probably heard stories about Bill Clinton. People meet him, they feel he makes them feel like they're the only person in the room. I never got that. And every time I met him and briefed briefing, he would just kind of look at me and I'd say, "Mr. President," and just kind of look at me blankly the way you're looking at me right now. Um, one, I working, one American. He said, oh, that's great, right, right? And then uh, a woman would walk by and call her out my name. I'm like, ah. Oh. <laughs> but after that, uh, my stand in the White House ended because I was at the very end of the second term, um, I was unemployed, and shockingly, George W. Bush did not accept my, uh, he accepted my letter of resignation. Because what happens at the end of an administration is all the political appointees have to write out our resignation letter. And then it's up to the incoming president to accept it. So George W. Bush accepted mine. I was unemployed. I know, like, oh, shocked. And uh, watching, I was watching way too much daytime television. I said, you know, I think I need to read something. So I went to the bookstore and I got this book on the history of southern food, and that launched me on the journey to write a book on soul food. And it was while I was researching and writing that book that I started discovering these African Americans who have cooked for our presidents. And the thing that really surprised me was that they had been there from day one. All the way from President Washington to President uh, actually President Trump because there's some holdovers from the Obama administration right now. Every president has had an African American either in their presidential kitchen or cooking for them when they traveled, either by train, yacht, or an Air Force One, or when they would take an extended vacation someplace. And we're going tell, I'm going to tell you some stories about some of those people. Um, so I, through my own research, I've identified about 150 African Americans who have served as presidential cooks and chefs. And I know I'm just scratching the surface because there have not been a lot of records about these people. So very excited to share this with you. I want to start off, and I'm sorry, that very first picture was me actually in the White House kitchen with a guy named Adam Colling. And Adam Colling is what's called the kitchen steward. And he just makes sure that all the, all the equipment in the kitchen is working. And then he does help with the food preparation. Uh, he's been there since the Reagan administration. And a uh, very cool guy. Uh, so I was, I was just happy to get a, a private tour of the White House kitchen. Happened to be those so that photo. Alright, so I want to talk about something I call the presidential pickle. And I thought the best metaphor for this is the Kool-Aid pickle. Does anybody know about the Kool-Aid pickle? Alright, has anybody had one? Did you like it? I preferred the pickle. Ah, uh, okay. do you know about both of these? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. My my, my aunt has store which used to store the cup of you Here in Chicago? Oh wow, okay. Alright, actually, I just got interviewed by the Chicago Tribune about that. So was it on the south side of Chicago? <laughs> Nice. Okay. So for those of you who have not ever heard of the Kool-Aid pickle, here's what it is. It's a, it's a specialty kind of in the Mississippi Delta that's now spread around the country. But essentially, you get a jar of pickles. You take the pickles out. You make Kool-Aid with the pickle brine. Then you either cut the pickles or poke holes in them. Put them back in the pickle brine, you know, the Kool-Aid mixture that you have now. And then leave it there for two weeks. Take it out and eat it. If you like the taste of pickles and Kool-Aid, it's just a sweet and sour combination, okay? If you don't like either one, this is one of the nastiest things you'll put in your mouth. <laughs> so I think the precursor to that is the peppermint pickle, or what people would do, uh, especially kids, they would get these pickles at the grocery store or the gas station, cut the tip off, and then put hard candies in it. So it could be a peppermint stick, it could be a Jolly Rancher, it could be anything. What you do is you let it sit in that pickle juice and then you just suck on it. Yeah. Are you okay are you yeah. right. <laughs> So, uh, the, to me, that is a metaphor for the presidential pickle because it's a, a combination of sweet and sour and the, are you okay? Yeah, I'm just moving this because yeah. Oh, okay, gotcha, thank you. It's my sister, my publicist, and manager, the well, you. Then. all right. <laughs> it, it's the sweet and sour combination that exists for the presidency because we want our presidents to be extraordinary people, but we often want them to be a lot like us. And food is often a lens for the president on the presidential soul, because we want to know that our president, even if they have to do the fancy food when they're entertaining, they still like the homey dishes from of where they're from. And so we pay a lot of intense uh, um, we pay a lot of attention to what our presidents are eating. And so in the structure of my book, what I decided to do, and I think being in a culinary school is a great uh, setting for this, is I created a mise en place. Right, I let, I set out all the ingredients of presidential foodways. And I began that way by talking about, first, of, first and foremost, it's just what the president likes to eat. And usually our presidents arrive to the Oval Office late in life, and they usually are on a special diet, diet because they haven't been taking very good care of themselves. But being a president is a very stressful job. And so usually they want to play hooky off any diet and take the comfort food that's going to power them through being president. And so presidents like their favorite foods, they try to get it anytime time they want, but then you have the second ingredient, which are the people who are around the president. And it's usually the first lady, or or you know, the spouse is, but they've been first ladies to this one. It's usually the first lady in the White House position who saved the president from themselves. One of the best stories I like to tell is uh, Ronald Reagan. So Ronald Reagan uh, loved Bavarian cream apple pie. All right, but he was on a diet. And so when he would go on air force one he would just light up like a little kid whenever he saw that on the menu but if nancy reagan was with them she would just whisper in his ear you're not having that <laughs> and he would meekly acquiesce right um, another great story involves president clinton so hillary clinton gave strict instructions to the white house chef i do not want you to give him anything with cream blah 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 right on the Foods. so whenever hillary clinton left then Bill Clinton would get hooked up with all the stuff that he loved. Right? So that's just the nature of the beast. And then the other, the third ingredient that I talk about is kind of the culture of the White House. You have staff that, their attitude is, hey, uh, this is our world, you're just a visitor. That's their attitude to the first family. And so they believe, believe that they are the guardians of White House tradition. And so their approach to work, their approach to service, and all these other things help help. Um, you know, it's part of the presidential food story. And then the last part is something completely beyond the president's control. And that's Congress and the public. So Congress actually allocates the money that the president has for his food budget. Okay, and entertaining. And actually before President Truman, the president of the United States would have to pay for entertaining out of their own pocket. All right, which is it kind of shows why most of our presidents have been involved in All right, and then um, there's always public perception. Our presidents, they do not, they really are conscious about their image, right? So they don't want to do anything that would make the public feel like they're out of touch or at least, and food often plays a role in that. So here is the earliest picture of the White House domestic staff. And this picture was taken in the spring of 1877. Can anybody here tell me who was president, spring of 1877? No, close. No, before. No? Who said Hayes? Okay, you get a prize. I don't know what it is yet, but you get a prize. Rutherford B. Hayes. So, um, in the picture, and I hope you can see this, on the very front row, in what would be the far, I guess your far right, is a woman named Wendy Monroe. She was the personal cook for the Hayes, and she's uh, pictured here um, with a lot of the other staffers. So, a lot of the African Americans who have served our presidents got there because of servitude. In the 19th in 18, 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, uh, the prevailing attitude among whites was that African Americans were born for servitude, and so of the limited professions that they could pursue without white backlash, being a cook, being a butler, being a yard person, those were the options. So a lot of these cooks just happened to be working for uh, elite and powerful families, and that's how they get to the White House. So she was actually the personal cook for Rutherford B. Hayes before he gets to the White House. In terms of the White House kitchen. Um, The structure normally is, um, at least up until the the 20th century, is that you had a head cook. They weren't called executive chefs back then, and I'll explain why later. You had a head cook, and you had an assistant cook. And the assistant cook was in charge of cooking the meals for the staff. And then you had some other helpers in the kitchen. The White House kitchen is not very big. If you were to go to the White House today and go to the kitchen, there were two things that were probably striking. First, you'd say, hey, man, I'm in the White House. And then the second thing is, man, is this it? because the White House kitchen is 30 feet by 26 feet. That's it. So when they do the big steak dinners and other things, they actually have to do cooking in the hallway and outside, and they have to hire an extra staff so they can feed all of the people at the White House. So it's a very small kitchen. Um, now, over time, as the White House staff grows and other things, you get more cooks added. So typically now, you're gonna have the White House executive chef, and you're gonna have a pastry chef, and that pastry chef usually has an assistant, and then there are two or three other staff cooks that make up the White House kitchen. So the White House kitchen staff is from five to seven people. Okay? Now, a president may bring their own personal chef to cook meals for the family. And President Obama did that with Sam Cass. But it's really unusual to do that. Before President Obama, the last president to bring their family cook with them was Lyndon Johnson. Otherwise, they had the White House executive chef handle all the cooking for the family for the VIPs, guests, all the big fairs. Now, um, as you know, the president and the first family can get food 24-7 whenever they want Want to. They're usually kind about that and don't really make late night requests too often. But typically, the White House staff will work at shifts, So it's not like the White House executive chef gets there for eight in the morning and stays until eight at night. Usually an assistant chef will come in in the morning and have a breakfast and maybe lunch, and then the executive chef will come in early afternoon work on dinner and late night snacks or anything like that. So there's a division of labor in terms of what they're going to do. So the first uh, person I'm going to talk about is a man named Samuel Francis. And let me just deal with the controversy that probably arose as soon as you saw this picture. You're probably thinking, man, that looks a lot like a white dude, right? Okay, so you have to know that the uh, ancestry, the racial ancestry of Samuel Francis has actually been contested over time. What we know of him is that he was born in what is now Hope, and then he came to the uh, British, colonial, uh, British Colonial America in 17, 1750s or so and opened up a shop in uh, New York City. Now, the reason why people go back and forth on his race is because uh, it's unclear what his status was because there weren't accurate records kept at that time. So the case for him being a white dude is this. Uh, first of all, he is actually listed in the census by name would have been unusual for an African-American at that time period. He was a member of a, a prominent church in uh, New York City, and uh, that would have been unusual for him as well. And he had a lot of property and ran businesses. And he actually had an indentured service. So that, again, was unusual for an African-American. Now, on the other side of the ledger, the argument for him being an African-American, or at least having an African an- ancestry, is this. First of all, people called him Black Sand. Okay? Now, if you were called Black Sam in that time period, it was either because you had African ancestry or you had a villainous disposition. I just don't think a dude that had a bad reputation would have spent so much time around Washington. Okay? Um, and later on, his descendants do acknowledge that they believe that he had African ancestry. There is a birth certificate that indicates that he had a white father and an African mother. I have not seen the birth certificate myself, I know I sound like a worker right now, I haven't seen it, but if you will indulge me, I'm going to say he's African American, or at least has that, that heritage, but he was at least biracial. So Samuel Francis uh, runs this shop called Francis Tavern, and a actually replica actually exists to this day, on 54 Pearl Street in lower Manhattan, you've been there? Okay, yeah, so there's a replica of it. Yeah, you've been there, okay. So this was the shop that he ran, and George Washington, who was then a general at that time, would come in and grub, and he loved his food. So by the time that Washington becomes president, he actually hires Samuel Francis to be his presidential steward. The presidential steward is the person in charge of all the domestic operations of the White House. Today, we call that person the chief usher, okay? The, the title has changed, but that's essentially. So the steward would actually hire the cooks, managed them, and actually, in a lot of cases, did the shopping in the early days of the White House. So um, one of the stories that I tell in my book, I'll tell you two stories about Sam Francis. The first one is I call the Poisoned Pea Fly of 1776. Has anybody heard about this? All right. So the story goes that uh, Francis's daughter, Phoebe, is in the kitchen, and there's a guy named Thomas Kiki who's kind of hanging around the kitchen sweet-talking her. Um, What we know of Thomas Hickey is that he is not a big fan of General Washington, even though he's part of his guard. And so Thomas Hickey was thinking, I've got to stop this revolutionary stuff and nip it in the bud. So he was thinking about assassinating the president. So, Phoebe is in the kitchen making one of General Washington's favorite dishes, which was green peas. He loves spring green peas. In fact, he loved these peas so much that his contemporaries called them pea-dead. I don't know if you knew that. I couldn't resist. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you I was going to do some party jokes, All right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's going to get a lot worse because there. So she's making this dish, and Higgy distracts her for a, a little bit, and then um, she goes to serve the dish, and she just has the sense that something's wrong. And so she tells her father, Samuel Francis, that she just thinks something's going on. Francis immediately understands what's happening. So even though the piece had gone on the table, George Washington is about to take a bite. And according to the story, Francis bursts from the table, or from the kitchen, goes to the table, grabs the peas, throws them out the window. It just so happened that a chicken was walking by at that precise moment. The chicken gets the peas and dies. Okay? So this, that animal testing, they figured out they, out, they figured out that the peas had been poisoned with arsenic. Okay? So it's a fantastic story, but it's probably not true for a lot of reasons, all right? First of all, Francis did have a daughter, but her name wasn't Pete, and it may have been a family thing. And there was a guy named Thomas Hickey who actually was charged with uh, counterfeiting because he uh, falsified some passes that allowed some people that may want to assassinate Washington to be in his company. So this guy was actually hanged in a public square in 1776, but his crime was Uh, counterfeiting and attempted treason, not, uh, you know, trying to kill George Washington. But I think it's a fantastic story, and if it is true, I would say, ladies and gentlemen, this is the first example of culinary homeland security in our great (laughs) nation. So another story I'd like to tell is uh, basically how Francis gets crosswise with uh, President Washington. So we fast forward. the. Capital has moved from New York City and now is in Philadelphia. And Francis really wished the best for the president. So he would buy the most expensive food. He would make it and put it in front of Washington. Washington did not want that because he did not want to come across as a monarch. Because remember, they just had this revolution, they got rid of the monarchy, right? He didn't want to seem like a monarch or aristocrat. So he wanted to, the public to think that he was eating plain food, not being too extravagant. So, uh, there's a fish called shad. Is anyone familiar with shad? Have you had shad? Okay, so shad was a very celebrated fish in the 1700s. Uh, Francis goes to a market in Philadelphia and gets the first shad of the season. He prepares it, it looks wonderful. He puts it in front of Washington. Washington asks him, what's this? And he tells him, it's the first shad of the season. I went to the market, it myself. And Washington says, take that away from me. I do not want you spending so recklessly. And so actually the serpents end up eating all this food. And this strains the relationship between Washington and Samuel Francis so much that Washington actually fires Samuel Francis for his extravagant spending. And Francis is, said, is, is um, recorded saying, I don't care what he says. I want the very best for the president. And firing him, he may. Well. He, he, he and so he ends up firing him. And after six months of eating someone else's cooking, Washington hires him back. <laughs> and so he serves uh, a few more years before he dies. He dies a few years before President of Washington's Presidency hands, but Samuel Francis is one of the characters that I uh, have in my book, and what I do is I show Different aspects of presidential cooking so when they chapter about Stewards and ushers he's uh, the first story that I tell the next one and this guy is a fascinating guy Is a man named Hercules has anybody heard about Hercules? Okay, he's, he and uh, James Hemings are probably the two that get the most uh, Who get the most uh, publicity so uh, Hercules was an enslaved chef And this portrait is actually hanging in a museum in Spain, and the artist is Gilbert Stewart. So if you're familiar with the iconic portrait of George Washington, the same guy painted this portrait. And it doesn't say Hercules, but the title of this portrait is A Cook for George Washington. Now the interesting thing uh, to notice here is that the clothing that he's wearing, the vestment, is not what you would see by an American chef in that time period. It's actually the clothing of a European chef. Okay, keep that in mind for something I'm tell you about the the story. But um, Washington purchases a Hercules as a teenager. He was working as a boat ferryman. And he puts him in the Mount Vernon kitchen. And so he apprentices for a woman named Old Doll, who was an enslaved cook at Mount Vernon. And after a few years, he uh, Hercules becomes the head cook. So um, when the, the executive residence gets established in Philadelphia, and if you have not been to the Independence Hall of... Uh, Kind of exhibit lately. Uh, a few years ago, they excavated around it because they were going to expand the uh, site around the Liberty Bell, and they uncovered the Robert Morris House. And the Robert Morris House was where Washington lived uh, while the presidency during his presidency um, in Philadelphia. And they found all of the uh, slave quarters, the kitchen, and all those other stuff. So the National Park Service was just the one to ignore all of this, but there was an outcry by local activists. So now there's actually a replica, an open-air replica of a house. You get a sense of the dimensions of the rooms and they have interactive videos to show you where uh, where in the, the house that was and who worked there. So I think it's just a wonderful exhibit. So Hercules gets installed and has the cook there because there was a woman named Mrs. Reed who was working there first in Washington and Samuel Francis were just not feeling like her cooking at all. So they actually bring Hercules up to Philadelphia to be the main cook. There was one difficulty though. Phil, uh, Pennsylvania had, in 1780, passed something called the Gradual Abolition Act. And that act said, if you were an enslaved person living in Pennsylvania for more than six months, you're automatically free. So this created a problem for all the enslaved uh, staff that Washington brought to Philadelphia. So what he would do is, right about the time that the six months would total, he would pack up all of the enslaved people and send them back to Mount Vernon for a couple of weeks, keep them there, and then bring them back to start the clock all over again. And he did this throughout his presence. I know, bring that up, right? So um, so Hercules goes through all of this. Now, Hercules had a lot of liberties that uh, Washington afforded him. He would allow him to actually go to the opera. He would allow him to go walk around town after he cooks. And he would dress up in blue suits and all kinds of stuff. You know, probably a with, you know, rappers would wear today. You know, he was wearing that kind of stuff back then. And then another the interesting thing is that he allowed Hercules to sell leftovers out of the kitchen. So he was selling leftovers out of the back of the kitchen and he was making equivalent in 2015 dollars, $5,000 a year selling his leftovers. I think that's pretty impressive. <laughs> but Washington had a feeling that Hercules wanted to be free. And he would often ask him and test him about Hercules running away. Hercules would act offended, even though he was actually plotting to run away. He would ask I can't believe that you would even think that. <laughs> so he begins at the end of Washington's uh, second term, and he's about to head back to Mount Vernon. And for whatever reason, a few months before that, he actually sends Hercules back to Mount Vernon, not as the cook, but as a meal camp. So this guy who had been making meals, celebrated in memoirs and other things, was now working in the fields. So Hercules could only stand so much of that. So on Washington's 65th birthday, Hercules escapes, and he runs away, and and if you know anything about Washington's personality, he had a a volcanic temper, and he did everything to try to track him down. And so there's all kinds of letters going back and forth to associates trying to find Hercules. And it goes through those five stages of grief, you know, and you can definitely track that um, through these letters. But one of the funniest letters that I uh, remember is one from actually Martha Washington. Two years later, after they just really had been given a pulpit if they would ever see her kids again, she writes uh, a letter to her friend, and this really sounds like something out of the Real Housewives of old Virginia, but uh, she said, thank you for that. All right, she says, uh, I am very plagued <laughs> because I have not been able to find a cook. And so, uh, there was just a lot of grief uh, associated with uh, Hercules running away. Now, in the interim, Washington dies. And according to Washington's will, he wanted all of the enslaved people free once he and Martha Washington died. But Martha Washington realized that her state was very precarious because the enslaved people at Mount Vernon knew that if she died, they would be free. So she decided to free them early, just for her own safety. But one day she gets a letter from the mayor of New York, a guy named uh, Lieutenant Barrick, and he says, I saw her feelings on the street. Do you want me to, try to get her back? And this is really curious because we don't know where Hercules went, but Martha Washington never responded. So she probably just realized it wasn't worth it, and that she was planning to free her enslaved people. Um, so that's the last sighting that we have of Hercules. Now, the speculation is, where did Hercules go? And the speculation is that he may have gone to Europe and sat for this picture of Europe. Because, again, because of all the efforts that Washington had done to actually retrieve, escape, uh, enslaved people and other things, he knew that Washington would spare no expense and never give up in order to get him back. And if you know the story of Lonee Judge, she is an enslaved um, maid who ran away in 1796, and Washington didn't watch try to get her back. And Hercules had seen all of this, so he probably just went overseas, to But we never hear anything from Hercules again in history. So, very fascinating character. All right, the next Jeff I want to talk about is a man named James Hemings. Now, James Jim. Hemings. Is not technically a presidential chef, but he did what he did with uh, Jefferson actually shapes uh, presidential food for decade, decade, decades to come. So James Hemings was one of the older brothers of Sally Hemings. Okay? she had two older brothers, and at age 19, when Jefferson became the minister of France, he actually sends Hemings with him, and for three years, pays a lot of money to have him trained as a classical French chef. So after this happens, he is actually the chef de cuisine at Jefferson's um, Paris residence, okay? And he does this for several years. They come back to the United States, and um, Jefferson actually asks him to be his cook while he was in Philadelphia, finishing out his secretary of state duties. We get to 1795, and James Hemmings, and now just understand this, James Hemmings is this enslaved chef working for a very powerful man. And he approaches him and he says, I want to be free. And Jefferson says, okay, I will free you on two conditions. One, you have to teach other people at Monticello how to cook, because I spent a lot of money on you. And two, you have to leave behind your recipes. So Hemings agrees to do this, and in 1796, he's free. Now, uh, he immediately goes to Philadelphia, and Jefferson sees him a couple of times. But then, somehow, Jefferson talks him into coming back to Monticello to be the head cook. That only lasts for about nine months, and then Hemings leaves. Uh, When Jefferson gets elected president, he actually uh, invites Hemmings to be his cook, but Hemmings never really took that position because he ends up drinking himself to death. And so uh, we don't know where his body is is laid now, but uh, Jefferson was very pained by that death and actually very worried about the state of James Hemmings towards the end. But James Hemmings played a vital role in establishing White House cuisine as French cuisine. This exists for a very, very long time, actually until well into the 20th century. Uh, one of the funny stories that I'll relate about um, Jefferson French food in the White House, and European food really, is macaroni and cheese. Now you may think of macaroni and cheese as this Italian thing that becomes an American thing. There are a lot of African Americans who believe it was an African American thing for a long time. But actually, mac and cheese goes back to old Europe. The earliest recipe that we know of was in the form of curry cookbook which was printed in 1394, and that was a go-to cookbook for Elizabeth I and Richard II. And the earliest version of mac and cheese was just the pasta with some Parmesan crumbled on top and maybe a little butter. And that's the earliest recipe. Then eggs, cream, you know, all that other stuff gets added later. So Jefferson, when he's spending time in Europe in the 1780s, he loves, falls and loves with mac and cheese. So much so that he actually smuggles the macaroni made back to the United States when he leaves Europe. And smuggled is the right term because the Italians had macaroni making on lockdown, and they didn't want anybody else to do that. And there's actually a drawing of Jeff- that Jefferson has of his macaroni maker at the Library of Congress. Um, so he brings it over, and as far as we know, he is the first person to serve mac and cheese in the White House. We know this because on February 6, 1802, a guy named Reverend Manasseh Cutler, who was a Congressman from Massachusetts at the time, Got invited to dinner at the White House, and he gets presented with this thing called macaroni and cheese. Now, this guy had never seen macaroni and cheese. He writes about it in his diary. He thought the macaroni noodles were giant onions. Yeah, he just couldn't figure it out. And so, you know, he asked this guy, you know, these onions or something, and the person, the guy sitting next to him who he asked was Mary Ward Lewis, uh, Lewis at He was like at that same dinner. All right? So he tasted it, and his verdict was it had a strong and disagreeable taste. <laughs> He wasn't feeling it. But um, mac and cheese becomes a part of what um, Jefferson serves in the White House. So it's one of his favorite dishes. The interesting thing, just cheese related, is after dinners at the White House, Jefferson would actually take people into the East Room, one of the larger rooms of the White House, and he would show them what he called the great cheese. So the great cheese was basically a gift that he got when he was elected president. Back then, people would just send the president a ton of cheese, a literal ton of cheese. And it took months to get through it. The most famous example of this is Andrew Jackson. who got another uh, ton of cheese, and he couldn't get rid of it after months of it being in the White House. So what he decided to do was have a public reception where anybody could come in and have some cheese and some orange punch. <laughs> Supposedly the White House smelled like cheese for months and He just couldn't get rid of it. All right. Let's fast forward to a remarkable woman named Lori, Laura Donnelly Johnson. So this is a a picture of a White House kitchen in about 1890. Donald Johnson is in the middle there. Donald Johnson um, shows the height of an African-American cook in terms of leveraging power, okay? Um, So she was a private cook for this wealthy guy in Kentucky, a guy named uh, Colonel Mason Brown. And a well-known police commissioner from New York happened to have dinner at the Brown residence. And that person was Theodore Roosevelt, young Theodore Roosevelt. He was so impressed with Dolly Johnson's food that when his friend, Benjamin Harrison, became president and was looking for a cook, he actually recommends Dolly Johnson. So they start the effort to woo her to come to the White House. She wasn't sure about it um, because even though she was cooking for this powerful person, she had her choice as to whether she would go to the White House or not. And so they actually had to convince her to do it. And when she gets the job, it makes national headlines. Which is unusual because you have newspapers not only recognizing her being hired as a cook, but they mention her full name. Before that, they would just say colored cook, Negro cook, or maybe not even maybe a first name or a second name. Yes, yeah, have. But you're 1890, I'm sorry. 1890. So um, it makes national headlines. But there was one problem. There was already a French woman in the role of White House chef, as the head chef. And she was not. Happy about the fact that she was getting fired for this African-American woman. So this French chef had a very American reaction to the situation. She filed a lawsuit and she went to the press. So this is the first known example or you know, known, first known case of a White House employee actually suing the president personally. Okay? So um, they resolved it, it never goes to court, but I just thought it was interesting. And it highlights this rivalry that we see throughout White House history of French cooks versus American cooks. Before the 20th century, well actually well into the 20th century, African American women were the face of American cooking. Whenever there were be boosters about American cooking, they usually referred to Southern cooks, and Southern cooks meant African American women. And so we see this kind of uh, tension between hiring a French cook or having this African American cook kitchen. And so Dolly Johnson was a perfect example of that. Now, um, most White House chefs, at least the African American ones, fade into history after they're hired in the White House. But Jolly Johnson was unique in the sense that she actually, um, she uh, actually ends up going back to Lexington, Kentucky, which was her hometown, and runs a restaurant. And so if you run this restaurant for a couple of years, and the restaurant actually played on her White House experience, which was very unusual for that time. And she actually uh, ends up, the last time we hear about her is that when Theodore Roosevelt's daughter, Alice, Roosevelt marries a guy named Nicholas Longworth. She ends up sending a pecan cake to the White House as a wedding cake, and it was evidently really good and gets celebrated in newspapers. So, Dolly Johnson is another fascinating person that I mentioned in the book. Okay, next person is Daisy Bonner. So, Daisy Bonner is an example of a cook who cooks for the president whenever the president will travel. So, this was a cook for Franklin Roosevelt. And when he would, uh, he had polio, and so he would often go to Warm Springs, Georgia to get treatments in the the pool there. And when he was there, he would stay for three weeks, a month at a time, actually. And so Daisy Bonner was a private cook for a wealthy family. And just to ingratiate themselves with the president, this wealthy family would loan their own cook to uh, Roosevelt. And she would cook a lot of Southern dishes and got him hooked on Southern food. Um, Two of the favorite things that he liked was something called country captain. Have y'all ever heard of that dish? Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a chicken curry dish, um, usually from Georgia, very very popular. And then the second thing she got hooked on was pig's feet. He loved pig's feet. In fact, he served pig's feet in the White House. We know this because one of the butlers witnessed this entire scene. And guess who he served pig's feet too? And they were sweet and sour pig's feet. Okay? Guess who? You all right? You gonna make it? Okay. Guess who we served these to? Winston Churchill. show. No. So they're eating, the well, we're seeing all of this, right, he writes about it in his memoirs. And so uh, they're eating this, and it's pretty obvious that Winston Churchill is not enjoying this. But Franklin Roosevelt asks, and President Roosevelt says, well, how do you like eating the pig feet?" And he says, oh, they're interesting. They have an interesting texture. That's all he says. And so President Roosevelt says, oh, well, great. So the next time we'll have them, we'll have them fried. <laughs> Churchill just kind of pauses and says, I don't think I would want that. And they both just start laughing, so they don't have it. But just in case you think I'm, uh, you know, this is just one episode if, uh, in his life, if you go to the Warm Springs Center and actually go to the, there's a display of the shopping list for the last uh, week of, yeah. of um, Roosevelt's life, and you'll see on the shopping list four hot Okay, So he just loved that. So she would cook a lot of things for him. But one of the memorable stories that I tell in uh, my book is just about this miraculous situation involving a cheese souffle. So for those of you who don't are familiar with the circumstances around Roosevelt's death, he dies while he's sitting for a portrait. It was not finished and um, she had timed a souffle to come out at 1.15 for him to eat. Now anyone who has made a souffle, you know that it has to be eaten fairly quickly, right? Or it falls. So this, he dies at 1.12 p.m., three minutes before the souffle is supposed to be served. And according to Daisy Bonner, okay, now I'm sorry. He he has the cerebral hemorrhage at 1.12. He dies a few hours later. According to Daisy Bonner, during that whole time before he dies, the souffle does not fall. Now you know this is a miracle, right? You know this it's a miracle, right? So I think that's just a great story. But she was so moved by his death. Uh, first of all, she's the one who calls the White House switchboard to notify them that something has happened to the president. And she's so moved by his death that she actually writes on the wall after he's pronounced dead and in pencil. If you go to the cottage, you'll see this. She writes on the wall, Daisy Bonner, cooked the first and last meal for President Roosevelt. So uh, I have her story in the book as well. Uh, now I'm gonna tell you about a guy named Alonzo Fields. Alonzo Fields was a butler, but he gets elevated to the point of, to the position of Major D. And in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, uh, the Major D was actually the role of the chief usher. So they were really in charge of all the domestic operations. So he was a longtime butler. He wrote a uh, he wrote a memoir, and because of his memoir and the memoir of another African American White House staffer, there are now is confidentiality rules for anybody who works at the White House, because yeah, they don't want people putting the president's business out there. But he was one of the um, earliest books. It's called My Twenty Years in the White House, and he uh, he basically runs the operations. And his job was really to make the White House uh, a comfortable place for the First Family. And what they often do is they try to anticipate what is the First Family going to want those first few weeks they get to the white house especially that first day they take a lot of pride in doing research i don't know why they just don't ask but they just kind of do research and try to anticipate what the president's going to want and there are two products that have um hemmed things up for the presidents and i'm going to ask you to guess what these products are okay first one involves president eisenhower president eisenhower gets to the white house and he asks for a particular product does anybody want to guess what that is what's that uh, okay, let me give you a claim. It's a dairy product, and it's something that would have been unusual in the 1950s. How does he- oh, close. Yogurt. yogurt. So President um, Eisenhower asked for yogurt, and the butler didn't know what yogurt was. So he goes to the- another guy, who was the head chief, Usher on, and that guy didn't know what yogurt was either. So ultimately they dispatch a butler. And this is the 1950s, okay? Not the convenience times that we have now. And they dispatch a butler in the evenings to drive around in the White House limo and find yogurt. They finally can find the yogurt. Now the second one involves Pat Nixon. Pat Nixon, Pat, Pat Nixon also makes a similar request which they just didn't have in the White House. And that was cottage cheese, right? So I write in my book, who knew that dairy would give so much indigestion right, to the White House staff? but they try to anticipate what they do. So this story involves the old fashioned. Is anyone familiar with the old fashioned cocktail? Okay, old fashioned cocktail, you know, bourbon, some, sh- some simple syrup, some bitters. So the Trumans love to have a, an old fashioned before dinner. They actually had a little couple's cocktail hour before dinner. So they asked Fields to make an old fashioned. So Fields, knowing the recipe, he makes this old fashioned. Best Truman takes one sip and she says, oh, can you not make it so dry? We like ours a little sweeter. He's okay. like, all right. So the next day, he makes it a little sweeter. Best Truman takes one sip. She's oh, this is too sweet. You work on this a little bit more. And this guy, he's just devastated because he takes pride in making his recipes, you know, mixing his drinks. So um, he was so kind of miffed about the whole situation that he decides to add straight bourbon and nothing else. So he brings up straight bourbon tells the first family that this is the old-fashioned. Best Truman takes one sip, and she's like, oh, now that's how you make it old-fashioned. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you just can't win. All right, another chef that I want to tell you about, or another um, kind of person to help with food service is a man named John Lomi. So here's a picture of John Loney with President Eisenhower. So John Mooney was a valet for General Eisenhower um, during World War II. And after the war, Eisenhower liked him so much that he asked him to actually just continue to be kind of his uh, personal assistant. And so Eisenhower was one of the cookingest presidents that we've ever had, all right? A lot of times he would go up on the rooftop of the White House and grill steaks. So you'd be walking along on Pennsylvania Avenue <laughs> and there'd be smoke coming out of the White House, right? And it would be Eisenhower up there just grilling steaks. So Moni was often the guy who would help him out. And there was something called um, Moni's stew, although it was known as Eisenhower's um, vegetable stew. But he was known for making this vegetable stew that had so much beef in it, I don't know why they called it a vegetable stew. <laughs> but he was known for this. In fact, Eisenhower used uh, the stew actually to help him in the 1956 election. So what he did is he would put the recipe out for the stew and then he asked housewives around the country to have stew parties. So they would make the stew, invite their neighbors to come over and hear more about Eisenhower. So even though it was called Eisenhower's beef stew, in the White House it was known as Moni's stew. Because Moni was the one who was really doing a lot of the cooking um, in terms of prepping the vegetables and and adding everything. Um, So he was a very interesting guy. And at the height of the civil rights movement, Moni was in a difficult position because people would often ask him to press Eisenhower to do more on civil rights. And you find this the case throughout history. A lot of times when civil rights leaders could not get the ear of the president, they would actually go to the staff, or especially the cook, and then ask them to put something in the president's ear. So um, he was often caught in the middle, um, but he loved Eisenhower and knew that Eisenhower was committed to civil rights, but still, there's always a woman that can be done. So it's very interesting how these chefs are often pressed into a role of being a civil rights advocate. But the most pronounced civil rights advocate is a woman Zephyr Wright. And of all the people that I profile on my book, if I could meet just one of these presidential chefs, it probably would be Zephyr Wright first, James Henry second, and Hercules third. Now Zephyr Wright was the family cook for the Johnsons from the 1940s. So she gets hired very early on before he actually becomes a well-known member of Congress and cooks for them the entire time. In fact, some could argue that Johnson's appeal and his popularity was because of the meals that um, Zephyr Wright would cook as he would entertain. Because a lot of people would entertain, bring people, and that's how you got to know people. So she was known for a lot of things like her chili, which we're going to have tonight or today, um, for her popovers, which is kind of a real quick bread. I actually had the chance to, to speak with Linda Rob Johnson, Johnson's eldest daughter, and that was the first thing that she remembered about Zephyr Wright. She's like all oh, those popovers. I can mean, just hear me whistle on the phone while I was talking to her. So I had that recipe in my book as well. But Zephyr Wright um, was a reluctant civil rights advocate in this sense. During the press for the 1964 Civil Rights Act, Johnson would actually use her Jim Crow experiences to persuade members of Congress to support the legislation. Because what would happen is um, when Congress was in recessing, they would actually drive back and forth from Texas to Washington, D.C. But along the way, Zebra Wright could not use the restroom. She could not eat in the restaurants and do all the other public accommodations that the first family could do. It got so bad that she just refused to go on those trips. She just stayed in D.C. year-round because she didn't want to suffer that humiliation. So Johnson would actually tell com- members of Congress, it's, the shame, it's a shame that the President's cook has to go through this. And so, actually, when the bill gets passed, and yesterday was the, I don't want to say that, it was an anniversary of the bill passing the House of Representatives. When the bill is finally passed, I don't know if you've ever seen a presidential signing, they usually have 100 pens. And so they do part, like they do one letter with a pen, and then it's really kind of crazy. But uh, she, he actually gives Zucker right one of the pens and says, You deserve this as much as anyone. Yeah. So, um, but. Often during the '60s and stuff when things were happening, Johnson would typically ask her, "He's, hey, you know, what do white people think about what I'm doing?" Are they impressed? And she would often kind of be coy about it, which would make him mad. I think she was purposely trying to get a rise out of him. Um, but he was using her to give him a window on black life, right? and Trying to find out how his policies and initiatives were being received. One of the cool things about her is that she did not take any mess from LBJ. LBJ was known for bringing people over to the White House at the very last minute and demanding dinner for everyone. Also showing up late. Who might be to show at 10 o'clock at night demanding dinner? And so Deborah Wright would say, alright, so if the president was alone and demanding food, she would just say to him, go sit in the kitchen, don't say anything, and you sit there until I make my food and I'll, I'll serve you. And you're going to eat whatever I put in front of you. And he would do it. LBJ would just go to the kitchen and just sit down and wait. Now, if he brought company, her strategy was this, especially if it was really late at night. She would say, okay, just start serving them liquor because it's going to take me a while to make this food, and then I'll bring the food out. And believe it or not, nobody would complain about the time to get the food. So I think she's just really, really smart. Um, But one of the funniest stories is an encounter that LBJ had with Senator William Fulbright. Fulbright, a senator from Arkansas, was one of LBJ's strongest critics during the Vietnam War. he said uh, in the press that the president was suffering from an arrogance of power. Okay? Now, LBJ consumed a lot of media and was watching what everybody said about him. Kind of reminds you of another president, right? Okay. So he uh, was just waiting for a chance to get back at Fulbright. And so there was a White House reception. Fulbright comes over and the president says, Hey, I saw what you said about me having an arrogance of power. Well, i want to show you something. So he reaches into a spot. He pulls out a note and it's a handwritten note by Zephyr Wright. Now, if you only think about LBJ's personal history and his health, you had known he had a heart attack while he was in Congress, he was on a very strict diet. And she said, Mr. President, you don't do much to take care of yourself. Well, you only talk about being someone's boss. Well, I'm gonna be your boss. From now on, you're gonna eat what I tell you to eat, and you're not gonna complain. And he told Phil Wright, now, how can I have an arrogance of power if I could is tell you this? <laughs> Now, the final story I'll tell you about Zephyr Wright is what I call the Great Chili Controversy of 1964. So, Pertinales River, Chili is a, uh, Pertinales River is the river that runs along the LBJ Ranch in Central Texas. Is there anybody here from Texas? Okay, is anybody here, oh, okay. You've been there, all right, I'm gonna put you on the spot. What do you know about Texas chili? What's distinctive about Texas chili? No beans. No beans, all right. So, Every once in a while, the White House will put out a recipe. And so they put out this recipe for this very Texas chili, and people freaked out because it didn't have beans. And they wanted to be reassured that the president liked beans. okay So they actually record a conversation, uh, transcribe a conversation in my book, where Zebra Wright is on point for spin control. So the social secretary for the White House calls Zebra Wright, and they have this conversation about the beans that the president likes. And basically she talks about, oh yeah, he likes pork and beans, he likes green beans with Maldita, believe <laughs> you have that company, Yeah, all that kind of stuff. I just thought it was hilarious. And Deborah Wright was known for probably doing what a lot of good cooks don't do, and she was known for doing lesser peas. Y'all know what a lesser pea is? A lesser pea is when a cook gives you a recipe, but they leave one thing out. <laughs> so you can't mimic that recipe. So she was known for doing that. Uh, but unfortunately, her White House experience has not been well. The stress and other things happen. She ends up gaining 50 pounds while working there. And regardless of what LBJ was going to do, she announced that she was no longer going to be White House chef, even before LBJ announced that he wasn't going to run for reelection. After uh, his presidency ends, she ends up cooking um, for Linda Rob Johnson for um, a little while. But then after that, she just kind of fades into obscurity and dies in 1987. She had talked about writing a low-fat cookbook because of all the low-fat cooking that she was doing for her own day, but it just never came to fruition. So uh, she's a fascinating woman. I wish I would have met her. I had a chance to talk to her. What you see here is a picture. Um, I, I did an event at the Smithsonian uh, American History Museum a couple months ago. And so on, the one, on one side is the chili made with uh, beef, and then there's a, t- a turkey version of that chili. So those, that's what's pictured here. Okay, let me talk about another dining space in the White House called the White House Mess. Um, that is not a you know metaphor or anything like that. Uh, it's a Navy term for the dining space. And so the White House Mess is created in the 1950s. And the White House Mess comes into being because of the remodel of the White House. Before the 1950s uh, renovation of the White House, the major renovation, because uh, it, the place was just basically falling apart. That guy, Lonzo Fields, that I told you about, when he would walk on the second floor, dust would come down on the first floor. And there was a lot of creaking and other things. So if, uh, somebody got brought in and basically the White House was condemned. And so the, the, uh, the Truman's had to move out of the White House for a year and a half while he had an extensive renovation. The one big factor from that renovation is that the White House had air conditioning for the first time. Before that, the White House was a part-time residence. Because the White House, as you probably know, D.C. is in a reclaimed swamp. So, if you've ever been in DC in July and August, it's just not pleasant, right? And so presidents and first families would often go someplace else as early as June and not come back until later in the fall, maybe even the winter, um, to stay in the White House. So all of a sudden, it becomes a year-round residence. And that meant the need for more staff. Um, There was no way that Congress was going to give the Trumans more money for staff in the White House, mainly because Truman had called them the do-nothing Congress. They didn't take all of that, right? So, they had to figure out how to get more staff. And what they decided to do was take the staff from the White House yacht and bring them over into the White House. And that was, that was uh, Best Truman's idea, was to just relocate that staff. So, the primary staff on the yacht was Filipino. So there's a long standing Filipino cook tradition down in the White House because of that move. And so they created this dining space called the White House mess. This is a picture of the White House mess from the uh, Reagan era. And essentially it's like an exclusive dining room within the white house it's on the it's in the west wing. it's on the bottom of the west Wing, right next to the situation room okay and only senior <laughs> and only senior staff can actually eat there now well, president obama actually created the ability for people outside the white house to eat there on the weekends which was pretty cool i don't know if president trump's going to continue that but that's the white house mess so only people of a certain rank could eat there now when i first worked at the white house I was not of that rank. I got that rank the last five months, so I got a chance to actually eat in this dining space. Very elegant food, very similar to what you would have in a country club, you know, that kind of food. I have to say, cheaper is slamming. I don't know what it's now, like but it's really, really good. So you have uh, Navy cooks essentially working in the White House mess. Um, so the White House cooking staff, if you're just a step back and look at the aggregate, it's a mix of Appointed, you know, kind of appointed chefs of the that serve with the pleasure of the president. These are usually the pastry chef and the White House executive chef. And then you have staff cooks that have been there for a while. A lot of them are military cooks because, again, the White House budget is very limited. So they actually borrow from other agencies in order to make sure that they can pay for all of the cooks. So one of these cooks was a guy named William Reddin, or Charlie Reddin. Uh, he was the first exi- uh, certified executive uh, chef in the White House mess. And what Chef Redden would do is he would do the catering for White House functions, because a lot of times they would just have the White House mess, cater office parties or whatever. Uh, and, but when President Clinton or President George W. Bush would go overseas, he would actually go out two weeks ahead of time to do advance work. So he would make sure that all the cooking was done right and all the food prep was secure. Um, so that's Charlie Redden. Right there, he is actually uh, he's distracting President Clinton with uh, a tuna salad sandwich. <laughs> That's what that distracts him. Okay, another uh, chef I write about in my book is uh, Senior Master Sergeant Wanda Joel. Wanda Joel is the first African-American woman to serve on Air Force One. And she was there from George Herbert Walker Bush all the way to President Obama. She had to retire because there's a mandatory 20-year um, flight retirement role. So she retired. She was on the plane on 9-11. and. Uh, for, white, for Air Force One food, essentially there are three people that rotate duties. So one person is in charge of making the food, another person is in charge of serving, and then there's one person in charge of making drinks. That's all they do, okay? And they rotate that responsibility. For Air Force One, because it's a plane, and just because of other security restrictions, you can't actually do a lot of types of cooking. So frying is a no-go, and so most of the times they're just heating up pre-made stuff. It Usually is made at Air Force Andrew, Andrew, uh, Air Force, uh, Andrews Air Force Base, or in the White House mess, and it's like half cooked or whatever, and then they finish it off in the White House kitchen, uh, in the Air Force One kitchen. There are two galleys on Air Force One, so there's one closer to the front, that's for the president and the senior staff, and then there's a rear galley that's for the press and other people flying on the plane. Um, she's a very interesting woman, and she uh, contributed a recipe to, to my book that uh, is basically using Hawaiian King's Hawaiian bread to make a French toast. And I was a big kid, seemed to love it. Um, you know, Clint seemed to love a lot of things, and uh, that's probably why he's a vegan now. I don't know if you knew this, but he's vegan now? Yeah. A recent trend in the White House has been the use of guest chefs. Uh, the chef that I have here is Patrick Clark. Patrick Clark was a well-known chef in New York in the 1980s and in the early 90s, and he was the first African-American to actually be offered the job of the White House executive chef. And let me explain the nomenclature. As I mentioned before, the White House chef was called head cook, chief cook, or first cook, before 1961. And that changed because Jacqueline Kennedy created this position, White House executive chef, she actually created the title. And then she said, I want European food made by European chefs. From that point on, we start to see African-American chefs decline in the kitchen. The other big factor about this is that it's the civil rights movement, and now other sectors of the economy are open um, for employment. And so a lot of African-Americans, even though they did cooking and they at it, they often thought that they were forced to do that because they had limited options. So now people can do other things. So unlike today's culture, where being a chef is like being a celebrity, back then it wasn't the most glamorous thing to do, okay? So we start to see uh, African-American chefs uh, on the decline of the White House. But uh, Patrick Clark, at this point, when the Clintons come in, was working at the Hay Adams Hotel, which is basically across the street from the White House. And he didn't know he was auditioning for the job, but his Clintons would come over and eat uh, fairly often. And so they actually loved his food so much that they offered him the job, but he turned it down. Do you know why he turned it down? It was too much of a pay cut. He was making $200,000 a year at the Adams Hotel. Do you know what the White House job was paying at that time, the executive chef position? Anybody wanna guess? What's that? 50, that's close. Fifty-eight thousand dollars so, yeah, so you do it for it because you love your country, right, the honor of prestige. But that's why he turns down the job. But later, two years later, um, when the Clinton decided to met Nelson Mandela at the White House, they asked him to cook the meal. And I have the entire um, meal, re- the recipes for the meal in my book. So if you want to replicate the state dinner for Nelson Mandela, you can do that in your kitchen. It's some complicated recipes, I'll tell you that, but um, if you want to do that, you can. But um, Patrick Clark actually gets the opportunity to cook this dinner, and so uh, the basic entree of the meal, the, the main entree, was a sesame-crusted halibut with some red curry and lemongrass, late summer vegetables. And what they were trying to recreate was kind of the flavors, the South African flavors that Nelson was Mandela was uh, accustomed to, but also integrated with kind of American food. That's, that's what they were trying to do. So Patrick Clark devises this meal. He's all ready to go. And then at the very last minute, the Clinton say, no, we want you to be a guest of honor. So he doesn't actually cook the meal. He gets to actually eat with the president and uh, Nelson Mandela. and So other staffers who were well-reafed on the meal uh, actually got to make it. The other uh, celebrity chef that I want to mention who's African-American, Oops. the is Marcus Samuelson. If you're a f- uh, fan of uh, food television, Marcus Samuelson is one of the hot chefs. He's got a very interesting story. Born in Ethiopia, raised by Swedish parents who adopted him, uh, actually was an expert on Swedish food, but now he's more branching out into more ethnic food. He's got Red Rooster and some other restaurants in Harlem. So he actually gets uh, asked to cook the first steak dinner that the Obama's had for the Prime Minister of India. And he does this, and that steak dinner is famous, not so much for the food, but something else that happens. I remember? Yes. Yes. Yeah, the yes. crashes. The real Housewives yes. of D.C. people. Yeah. And people got fired over that. Yes. Now, here's the thing. Having worked in the White House, I just don't know how that happened. Because the number of security breaches that have to happen for you to get in the White House, because even to get into the complex, you have to give your name, you have to give your social security number, and you have to say who you're going to see. And if that person has not submitted an appointment, you're not supposed to get in. So I still don't know how, that how it happened. The other thing is I'm kidding myself because, you know, while I worked in the White House, if I had known it was so easy to get into the state dinner, I would have done it. Right <laughs> and I end my book by talking about the future of White House chefs. Uh, you know, going forward, a president can pick whoever they want to be the White House chef. If somebody wanted their mom to be White House chef, it's done. All right? As well, long as they pass the security clearance, I think it <laughs> Um, but it's done. So there's nothing really precluding african American from being in that position. What has, I think, hurt the chances of African-Americans is because so many have left the cooking profession after the Civil Rights Movement, that it's only now that we're starting to see African-Americans really more interested in cooking. And I think a lot of that has to do with the celebrity chef culture that we have now. But it's a pretty, it's, it's a fairly white industry in terms of the elite chefs. And when you're seeing more and more African-Americans being celebrated. But I thought, What inspiration does the uh, the White House kitchen give to young African-Americans? And I came across this young lady, Kiana Farkish. Kiana Farkish represented Colorado, my home state, at the 2014 Kids State Dinner hosted by Michelle Obama. If you don't know about this, um, for the last several years, Michelle Obama has had a recipe contest. So kids from all across the country had to make a healthy meal. And the winning recipe, that person represented their state and they got a trip to the White House. They bring all these kids together, and they featured a few of their meals. And so she's one of the the people that I have in my book. Now, this was probably the most difficult interview to get from my book. And the reason why is that I used to date her mother, and it did not end well, right? (laughs) Took some diplomacy, but I worked it out. (laughs) So. But she is inspired by the kitchen, and so much so that she really wants to use food to help people. She's a really strong food advocate. And, you know, she's not limited to being a White House chef. She could be president, you know? And so there is the sense that uh, what Michelle Obama has done with food and let's move initiative is inspiring our young people. So uh, I think the future was bright for African American chefs. It just depends. Now in terms of the contemporary kitchen, there are three African Americans who are now currently on staff and they are holdovers from the Obama administration. And it's unlikely that they would be moved out unless they quit. Um, because they're not the head chef or the pastry chef. It's usually the president replaces the head chef or the pastry chef, so we'll just have to see. But there's really no news of um, what President Trump's going to do. The current White House executive chef is a Filipina woman named Presidente Comerford, and she actually got hired during the Clinton administration, and then she got elevated to the head chef position, executive chef position, in George W. Bush's second term, and she's been there ever since. The Obama's decided to keep her there. So she's cooking right now, and so we'll just have to see what happens. I have actually managed to track down a former personal chef for um, Donald Trump, and so this guy's willing to be interviewed, so I'll just see what he tells me. All I can share with you right now is that evidently, Donald Trump loves meatloaf. So that's one of his favorite things, so we'll see what happens. So let me end by just saying there are several ways that you can get my book. Um, one is uh, you can also go through my uh, you can go through my website and I'll send you an autographed copy and um, you can purchase it here. It's available online. It's also an audio book. But there are three main themes to my book. and I just want to close out with this. One is that these were culinary artists who were celebrated for the work that they did, and a lot of memoirs, newspaper articles, and other things you see these cooks getting a shout out. And a lot of times they were family compounds. That's the second theme of the book. You see presidents caring about the families, going to the funerals. Um, and so there's, there's genuine affection that you see here and there. And then the last is that they were civil rights advocates. I've told you some stories where these cooks and main presidents confront race and the status of African Americans in our country. And you can see through the White House kitchen, the changing status of African Americans in the broader society. That plays out of the White House kitchen. But um, I just think that this is a rich legacy that has not been celebrated. It's a very unique perspective on the presidency, so I glad to bring forth these stories. And I just think these cooks gave a window on black life that presidents would not have had otherwise. Now, a lot of our presidents chose not to open that window, but some of them did. And I think our country is better for it. Thank you.
0: That you're here listening to this. And uh, as you can see, I'm, I'm giving Adrian a standing ovation for myself. <laughs> but, uh, I have a special thank you. And Adrian's gonna be answering your questions. I have a special thank you to Charlotte Freaker. Charlotte is, is the reason Adrian has been talking for us. This is the second time Charlotte was able to be able to speak for us. Charlotte is the former food editor that right? And Cheryl is also been a member of the And uh, we will open for questions now. And you uh, probably know this already. I'm going to ask you to repeat each question.
1: Yeah, so the question is, and I use, I'll just ask it broadly. The question is, uh, when the president travels to another country, is there somebody who has the role of taste tester? And I've been asked that in a general sense. So um, in terms of tasting the president's food to see if it's poisoned or not, it's usually the opposition leader in Congress. No, I'm sorry. Uh,
0: It's actually the chef
1: who is the taster. So there's nobody designated to do that. So it's just the actual chef, yes. Oh no, he's just, uh, President Obama's the latest chef to have his own personal chef. There, others have had that. Before that, it was Lyndon Johnson. So up until then, um, from Nixon all the way to George W. Bush,
0: so, how did President Obama get
1: to know him? That I don't know. I think, uh, does anybody know how he got to know Sam Cass? I don't know if he ate at his restaurant or do you know? He cooked, He was doing something for his kids? He was also cooking at the uh, Jane Addams house. Jane Addams house? Okay, so somehow he got in his orbit. Yeah. But usually it's a personal cook who See, comes. I, guess, uh, I, I don't
0: know how he'll bounce, but he lived in Hyde
1: Park, too, I've Oh, he's a neighbor? Okay, so there's, there's, there's lots, you know, the labs, so the kids went to the same school? Okay, all right. And he probably showed up with some baked goods if they lived in the neighborhood, right? All right, I'm going to go back here, and then I'll come here. A great question. So is there a policy in the White House to feature American cuisine? So that has changed over time. Again, for, for much of our history, French food was the food of entertaining. So for all of the state dinners and things like that, it was French food. And usually, they actually would bring in a French chef to do the cooking for the VIP cooking. And then you had African-Americans or other cooks doing the family cooking and just kind of private dinners. So ever since Hillary Clinton, though, well, now let me back up. When um, Johnson was in the White House, he actually was not only pushing American food, but American wines. Nixon loved French food, and so did uh, other presidents after that. So it was pretty much a French vibe. But then when Hillary Clinton comes in in 93, she's like, I want to feature American food and also American regional food. And since then, that's been the idea. So for instance, at state dinners, there's a conscious effort that one of the courses will be an integration of uh, American regional ingredients with a shout out to the culinary traditions of whoever they're hosting. So they try to fuse those. So that's one thing they consciously try to do. But there was a lot of pressure from chefs and others to uh, celebrate American food, and pressure to hire an American chef. So that's happened. Let me go here and then I'll, yeah. There
0: was- Wondering considering our new president has three residences. Obviously he's gonna keep his tower in New York, and then there's the White House, and then there's Mar-a-Lago. So based on history, would the people who cook at all three different places be considered White House chefs? Oh, that's a great or would they Right chefs of just the different residences, or how would that go down in history?
1: That's great. So the question is, when, you, when the president has multiple residences, the people that cook at those residences, if they're different, are they all called White House chefs? No, they're not. So I'm very precise in calling White House chefs people who actually cook in the White House basement kitchen. Okay? I think White House mess chefs are different. That's why I use the term presidential chefs. So anybody involved in cooking for the presidents, you know, I call presidential chefs. Now there is a hidden valor, a stolen valor kind of vibe with White House chefs. Because what you'll find, much like people that claim they're Purple Heart recipient or you know whatever that these tour do, you'll have people that'll cook for a president one time and they'll call themselves a White House chef. And if people don't research research that and call them on that, you know it's going to be a messed up situation. Somebody actually wrote a book claiming to be a presidential chef, and he said that he was the first African American chef in history. And then he was hired by Reagan and stayed there until Obama. He says that during the Clinton administration, he was in the kitchen and somebody walked through with the blue dress, you know, that kind of stuff. So he's obviously just making stuff up, but that kind of thing happens. Here? So the question is, has there ever been Native American influence in the kitchen? Um, Certainly in some dishes being served, um, there's been a conscious effort to celebrate Native American. But other than that, the presence has been very limited. there, there, are, there are recordings of Native Americans being invited to the White House, but you just don't see anything listed about the food that was served. So, I, I really wanted to feature that in my book, because I'm actually working on another book, a, ch- a children's book about all the people of color who have worked in the White House. Next to African Americans, the strongest presence is Asian American, and then a serious drop off to Latinos and other groups. It's really African Americans and Asian Americans that have formed White House food, presidential food. Uh, was there a question here? Okay, sir. Right, so what was the interaction of the presidents with the personnel on uh, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon's White, White House, right? Okay, so um, Kennedy, was, it seemed like he was friendly, but it was kind of aloof. You just don't hear a lot of interaction. Johnson was just a nightmare to people. Uh, very bossy, would yell at them. Um, he was known for being a tightwad about a lot of things. And so one of the things that really bugged him was have, leaving the lights on. So he would actually walk through the White House and cut off all the lights. And woe to the staffer who left the lights on and Johnson caught him. So there's actually a very funny story where there was a staffer who left the lights on. He went to go run some errand or something. It just so happened that President Johnson comes in the office and sees the lights on. So instead of turning the lights off, he actually sits there and waits for the staffer to come back. Some, he was lucky because a friend of his, another staffer said, Hey, the president's waiting for you in your office and it's about your lights. So he just left didn't come back. Um, Johnson was also known for economizing, so he actually brought an outside hotel food consultant and brought her and her staff in the White House. And that was the last straw for the French chef who was a holdover from Kennedy, a guy named Rene Verdon. There were a couple things that were the last straw. One was that the Johnsons didn't like his French food and they would ask him to make more American and Tex Mex. In fact, Rene Verdon called chili con queso, you know, he called it chili concrete. You know, <laughs> And so when he brings out this uh, economizer, that was the last straw so Gordon quits. But uh, Bob Hope, the comedian, actually joked about this. He uh, went to a steak dinner and he comes out and he says, who knew you could do that with leftovers? You know. <laughs> and then Nixon was actually known for being very friendly with the staff. Now he was an odd character. Um, there's a story in my book I talk about where Nixon's on Air Force One, and one of the waiters, um, a guy named Lee Simmons, who was part of the food service, asked the, uh, president what he wanted and he said well i'd like some uh, chicken soup and so the guy goes back and there's no chicken soup there and so the president says well may i have some chickens and he meant live chickens and you know the guy didn't you know so stuff like that happens a lot but nixon was actually fairly friendly yeah
0: i um, love your mac cheese story It's just so fun um but i wasn't clear you said that in 1394 um queen elizabeth um liked it but i can tell if was.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. So um, it was an Italian recipe, but you have to know that there was a lot of interaction between the elites of these European countries. So there was a cookbook that a lot of European courts had. You know, the, so the form of curry cookbook that won in 1394 was shared in a lot of different palaces. So they all referred kind of, kind of to the same book. So it was an Italian recipe, but it was in this book that was used by English cooks as well as French cooks. Yeah, sorry, sorry for not being clear on that. Yes. So the question is, where, where are the sources for the recipes in my book? So I have 20 recipes and it's a mix. So some of them are historic recipes that I saw referenced in either cookbooks or newspapers or some other thing. And so some of them we adapted for the modern kitchen, but some of them we left historical just because of the way that they're written was kind of illuminating. But most of the recipes are actual presidential recipes or some that were inspired by presidents and others that were just adapted for the modern ki- uh, for the contemporary kitchen. So it's a mix, not my own personal collection. I have, I believe, almost every White House cookbook that's ever been published, Um, and especially ones written by former uh, people who worked in the White House kitchen. Um, And it's not a large collection, it's probably 12 books. Um, Most White House chefs do not write cookbooks after they leave, Um, especially those who are assistant chefs. Kevin Norton is part of the room. So the question is, how much archival material is available On food in the White House. So it just depends on what each administration decides to save when they create their presidential library. There have been a number of fires through White House history, so a lot of records were destroyed, but unless a president decides that that's worthy of being saved, it's just, those records aren't kept. So in terms of, uh, if you go through my book, I actually have a chart of African-American presidential chefs by administration. You'll see some presidents, there's a whole bunch of names that I list, and for others, there's may- maybe just one or two. Because if a president didn't decide to record who was in the kitchen, the staff, and nobody took a picture, it's just lost a history. So it's just really up and down. Um, in terms of actual food expenses and that, I, that was all classified or made unavailable to researchers, researchers, I should say, and many of the presidential libraries. Um, but... Some presidents are very good about keeping all the family menus. Like if you go to the Carter Museum, you can actually see what President Carter had every day of his presidency. Not only in the state dinners, but in, in the residence. And I, there was a funny letter where um, Rosalind Carter is giving instructions to the, to the chef that uh, Jimmy, it says Jimmy does not like peas, you know, that's because they, they would create a menu and then submit it to the first lady for approval. So you see these kind of marginal notes in history, but other presidents, you have just no idea and so for that I had to turn to newspaper articles or memoirs. Yes, oh wait, let me just make sure nobody else has another. Okay, yeah. Question is, did any of the presidents have food allergies? Yes, they had food allergies and dietary restrictions and so what would happen is when a first family during the transition period, they would actually consult with the White House chef and they list all of the allergies and then everybody involved in presidential food service was given that, so people on Air Force One, on the presidential yacht, the presidential train, whatever. So they would know not to make something that the president shouldn't have. Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. So the question is, what first lady was really involved with presidential chefs? From my research, it was Mamie Eisenhower. She just ran that kitchen with a tight fist. Um, and in terms of fights, um, there would be disagreements. Um, the chef would always lose. And under Eisenhower's uh, administration, one chef was fired because he just kept cooking with onions. And Mamie Eisenhower hated the smell of onions, but the president loved dishes with onions in them. So you know, you're know you caught because your ultimate boss is the president, but your immediate boss is the first lady. And so if you have a president saying, I want you to make this, the first lady's like, no, don't make that. You know, Sometimes it just doesn't shake out <laughs> well for the president. So that, you see a lot of examples of that. But a lot of our first ladies really delegated it to somebody else. Yeah, the most uninterested person in White House food history I would say is Eleanor Roosevelt she just seemed fundamentally uninterested in food and so she hired a woman who could not cook to run the White House food operations and her name was Henrietta Nesbitt this is how bad the food was during FDR's time people would actually think about eating first before they went to the White House for a steak dinner and, I, uh, and Roosevelt complained loudly about the food he said the food was rival something at an auto so that was not that was not a compliment, right? But the thing was he had seceded um, uh, he had ceded, uh, White House domestic operations to Eleanor Roosevelt. So that was her sphere. And many speculate because of his infidelities and other things, this was payback. Okay? <laughs> but I had a, I had a I had a you know, I had to really wrestle with this because what's that? Yeah. Yeah. So he had, yeah, that was the chef with the Pixby. Yeah. So he had all of these black women cooking in the White House kitchen. So I'm like, well, how could the food be that messed up? And this is what I found out reading somebody's memoirs. Henrietta Nesbet, the woman who couldn't cook, would come in the kitchen, and she would just stand and watch the other people cooking, and she would adjust their seasonings while they were cooking. So they would make something palatable, and she would just mess it up. Yeah. Now, Daisy Bonner, that woman I told you about, had a way to get around it especially if uh, Henry Nesbitt was around or Eleanor Roosevelt or the White House physician and they could tell that the president was peaked and you know, needed you know, some sustenance. So they would take the recipe that the White House physician or whoever directed them to do. They would make it and they would bring it out and then they would whisper in his ear, don't eat that. And so yeah, they would, as they were putting a plate down in front of him, And so FDR would fake like he's not hungry. He would just kind of play with his food Say, I'll get to it later. And then once everybody else was gone, they would come, he'd come back in the kitchen, they'd hook him up. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was great. Any other questions? Now, one other question I often get is, well, what happens when the president goes out to eat at a restaurant? It depends on timing. If the president does an impromptu visit, essentially the Secret Service comes in the kitchen, they just quarantine it, and then they do a quick background check on everybody in the kitchen. Okay? And nobody else can come in that kitchen from that point on. And believe it or not, on the Secret Service, there is a trained chef, okay, who is armed and is watching you as you cook. So if you watch Food Network, Top Chef, you've heard of elimination challenges, right? That's an elimination challenge, okay? Now, if, the, if it's in advance, what they will do is they'll just do it like they would do any other presidential visit. So they'll say, who's gonna, who's supposed to work that night? They'll do a security background check on everybody who's supposed to work that night. And then again, nobody else can come in that kitchen. So you know, depending on the president, they usually don't like to go out to eat too much. But I think the Obamas went out fairly often. Um, I don't know about the Bushes. I just don't remember hearing much about the Bushes coming out to eat much. But that's kind of the story with President Buffy. Yes? If one other thing, the Secret Service will be-
0: <clears throat> to the president, and they, it's called an eyes on table, so it has to be right there. You're not even allowed to put water on that table because, in the nanosecond, the table would go down to grab a glass of water, something would happened, So it's a completely clear
1: table called an eyes on. Oh, nice. I'll have to add that to my. Okay, thanks. So you had the president come and eat at your kitchen? Or? Um, no, but I had a lot of people came in, and, and I
0: would always ask them, and I'd say, Do you need an eyes on? And
1: they'd say, We're okay. Okay. And Oh, gotcha, okay. Wow, that's interesting. All right, yes. Uh, in the reign of Franz Josef, in, in Vienna, the
0: uh, restaurants around the palace <coughs> were really uh, active after a state dinner because Franz Josef was a fast eater. And so so the protocol is supposed to be that you start when the hosts start Business?
1: Uh, that's a great question so uh, she was talking about a chef in, or uh, during the time in France that there was a, a king or uh, Vienna. oh Vienna I'm sorry somebody who would eat very quickly so um, and the restaurants would get business because of that right or just anything around state dinners I'm not sure about that I haven't seen any reporting on that but there is an interesting history of just kind of state dinners and the pace of them so um, our fastest eating president was Herbert Hoover and I write about this in the book, he ate so fast that the White House staff, the African-American staff, they would actually take bets on how fast he would eat. He would actually eat a meal in eight minutes. That was kind of the over-under uh, for a president. But they did acknowledge that he slowed down for state dinners just because he wanted to be, you know, considerate to the guests. But um, yeah, state dinners pacing, even though there's a tradition to it, it depends on the president. Uh, you know, you had Lyndon Johnson who loved state dinners and wanted to dance into the night. Typically a state dinner would start at eight and people would be out by 11. And one thing that was uh, part of the protocol is as guests were leaving, you had a line of butlers just to make sure you didn't take home any souvenirs, which often happens at the White House. Uh, In fact, when you go to eat a state dinner at the White House, you usually have a mix of presidential China from different uh, eras, eras, presidential eras. One, because China breaks and so they had to replace it. But people just live stuff, they just take stuff. Especially if it has White House on it. That's why glassware at the White House does not have White House on it. Because they don't want people to steal it. So things like that. But one president uh, changed the course of, uh, literally changed the course of state dinners and that was Nixon. So after one state dinner, uh, usually before that there was was a soup course. And Nixon went to one of the chefs and one of his uh, staffers and said, hey, these dinners are taking way too long. Let's get rid of the soup course. And so H.R. Alderman, who knew Nixon fairly well, knew something was up. He's like, why is he banning the soup course? So he went to one of the butlers and said, hey, did Nixon spill some soup on his soup? And the guy said, yeah. And that's why they got rid of the soup course. (laughs) So, you know, vagaries like that. But that's a very good question. I'm gonna have to research that. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, thank you. The food, you know it. Okay, it was your book, and yeah. who, who made the food? Don't, just, don't, okay, her, <laughs> she's, she's my she's boss here. No, no, all right, I but I just to... all right. So, um, we have three things for you today. So, one is the sweet potato cheesecake, a uh, favorite of Bill Clinton,
0: made by Joan. Joan.
1: <laughs> yep, yeah. and Joan, what's your last name? Hirsch, Joan Hirsch. Thank you so much. You're a pastry chef here, right? Is there a place where we can go savor other things you made? Oh, Oh, all right. Congratulations. And she's happy for it. And she's happy for it. Uh, we have some Perdanelles River Chili. Now, this is a meaty chili, okay? And it's uh, it's fairly bland, but we have some spices if you want to kick it up a notch. But I love this chili because it's very customizable. Because, you know, I am kind of heat adverse. Yeah. I put in everything you said. Okay, good. Thank you. And that was made by Charlotte Draper. Thank you. At correction, that was made by Joanne. Oh, Joanne. Okay, sorry, Joanne Ralph, Thank you. Wave your hand. All right. Thank you. In fact, uh, we mix the two
0: together. Yeah. We'll yeah I think so.
1: All right. And then the last thing we have is the deviled almonds, and this is from uh, Dolly Johnson. Yes. And they're on the side over there. They're oh. in the oven. I just pull them out. Okay. She said serve them warm. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the these deviled uh, almonds, seriously, it's just almonds, butter, and cayenne. And people, it's addictive. People go crazy for that. And but I think you'll enjoy this. So, um, what we can just have people come up or. Yep, yep. Uh...